Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast, episode 13. Wait a second. You're not Anna Braiding. I'm not Anna Braiding. I'm, well, I was going to say unfortunately, but actually, fortunately, <laughs> <laughs> Anna Braiding is at home without a voice today. So I've stepped in. So I'm back, guys. Lucky you. I feel like we could have brought in some sort of auto-tuned voice synthesizer for her. That would have been a really... I could have done yeah. Anna's voice. Hello, it's Anna Braiding. Could no? have tested my... <laughs> it's like she's here, Greg. It's uncanny. <laughs> so I'm joined by Mark Stockley. Hi. And Greg Idden, whose name I can pronounce. You yeah, F-I-D-O. Fido, is it? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, I'm talking about the Twitter 2FA mobile phone scandal. Mark's talking about Android Zero Day with a difference. And Greg discusses how not to use Stack Overflow. Indeed. But before we do that, I what? want to talk about a little letter S. Hang on, this is not going to be a question. I'm sure Can you frame it as a question? I'll always be into that. a question for you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to do. He's well, not... That's how these things begin, isn't it? You hijack everything and ask us a question. Well, I strangely say enough, in this case, it's not me asking the question. In this case, it's Pew Research. Pew Research do lots of interesting surveys, and they did one. We, we wrote one up last week. And amongst the questions that they were asking to sort of try and figure out what the kind of computer literacy of uh, Americans was was whether or not people knew what HTTPS was or what HTTPS stands for. HTTPS is obviously the Hypertext Transfer Protocol Secure. The S bit bit being crucial in this. Um, And it turns out that, guess what, most people don't know what HTTPS stands for. They don't know what HTTP stands for. And, (laughs) And my question is... Why are we even asking right. people this question? Well, can I just say, I think, you know, some of the attitude around this was kind of, ha-ha, they don't know what HTTPS means, how funny. And I think coming from somebody who is kind of not a cybersecurity nerd, I've worked in cybersecurity for nearly a year now, so I know my fair amount of it, but there's a lot of stuff that I would never have known outside of this industry. And even though I've learned it now, I wouldn't be talking about it in plain conversations with my friends. What? <laughs> <laughs> it might be a surprise to you guys, but a lot of these things we only talk about in this kind of environment. And so I do think it is logical that people don't know what it means. And should they know what it means? I don't know. What do you reckon, Greg? I mean, you are absolutely right. Like, the S stands for secure. And it's funny how of the most important letter in that entire like acronym that they chose, the S is tacked on right at the end. So firstly, HTTP and HTTPS visually are quite similar. They share a lot in common. <laughs> right? And then finally, if it's so important, you know, they when they were writing that specification for a protocol, it didn't need to be HTTPS. No. It could have been secure colon slash slash whatever. Yeah. So I, it certainly wasn't, I mean, okay, there certainly wasn't a marketing person helping them out when they named that protocol. Um, and it certainly wasn't something anyone had in mind. Ooh, we need to make sure that people can, can discern the difference between HTTP and HTTPS. That's what browsers have been picking up with, like, the padlocks and the green boxes mm. and so on. I think that the fact that we're caring about this or the fact that we're caring about whether or not users care about this shows you how far off track we are. Yeah. Right. And there's some really interesting research out of uh, Google. So Google, as you would expect, because they've got a browser, spend a lot of time and money on user interface design research. And they are desperate to kill off URLs in Mm. general Mm. because actually the entire address scheme for the web uh, is baffling to users. It's not just the HTTPS at the beginning. 
it's the colon, it's the slash, it's the other slash, it's the domain name, and then it's the path afterwards yep. and the fragment ID and the query string, all the other stuff. URIs, URLs, URNs. This is stuff that your computer cares about. Now, if you know what it means, you know, you can kind of slice and dice the URL and you can hack it around, but you're not really meant to do that. Um, that's that's not really what it's for. So I, like, I don't think users should care about any part of the URL at yep. all. And I, I think it's bad that they they do have to. Well, Tim Berners-Lee's even said, like, he regrets many things when he came up with the internet, such as the completely unnecessary slash slash, right? It could be HTTP colon thingy. There's no real reason for the double slash. It's just what it ended up being for some reason. And that's, again, a big regret. regret. The whole WWW as well. The, the acronym that's longer to say than to say what it actually stands for. <laughs> WWW or World Wide Web. Right. <laughs> so it, it's full of, I guess... I mean, it's legacy, right? The internet and HTTP and so on. These are old technologies which have evolved and we've kind of learned from. I mean, when they created the internet, I, I mean, there's a video I was showed uh, back when I was learning computer science where someone goes, the internet, ah, the internet, here, let me show you. And they draw a diagram of the whole internet because back then there were so few computers. You just draw them on, they go, that's those computers and that's the internet. There you go, guys, done. That's You can see it all. And so now that, you know, now that we kind of extended past that and, and everyone has an internet connected device, it's kind of understandable that these technologies developed so long ago with no real expectation of them to blow up like they did. Like Tim Berners-Lee was just trying to make it easier to link documents, probably for academic research, right? When he was working at CERN, not thinking when people are going to be browsing Facebook. Well, to and- be fair, he did call it the World Wide Web. I think he clearly had visions of something, French? you know, something global. <laughs> True, but you're Bridget. right. I, lo- I love the idea that, you know, there was a moment where you could draw the internet on a whiteboard. And if you look at things like email and the sort of intractable security problems that we have with email, like even now it's almost 50 years old and I can send you an email and pretend it's from you yeah, and it. say I've hacked you. Like all of those problems stem from the fact that there was a time when you could draw the internet on a whiteboard and you knew everyone else that was using it, you know? And it hadn't occurred to anybody that somebody might actually want to be nasty. And so you didn't need things like security and encryption and stuff Mm. like this. Now, I do think that there's light at the end of the tunnel because we've seen recently... So the browsers over the last few years have been changing the way that their interface works and moving away from this idea that HTTP is sort of standard or normal and that HTTPS is some kind of secure version of that and moving towards the idea that we should expect HTTPS to be the standard and that rather than saying, hey, you're now using the web securely, we you should just the interface should match people's expectation, which is that they're using the web securely. And if that's not the case, then the browser should alert you and say, hey, this bit isn't it's secure. Insecure. Yeah. And the same thing's happened with certificates, isn't it, Greg? Yeah, well, so we were talking about this earlier. That's yeah. why I've got that wonderful like segue into me. The extended validation certificates were like this big thing. You used to spend a load of money on basically identifying yourselves and proving that you're the owner of this website and you'd get this like fancier you know, SSL certificate for your website, which would say that you'd gone through the extended validation process and that this was extra trustable. So that was kind of this, and they're quite expensive things. And so you used to get this, not just the green padlock in the, in the URL bar, you used to get like a green padlock and this big green box around your company's name in the address bar 
So it would like really stand out that you're on this secure website. But I checked, I, I just checked Chrome on in dark mode on my machine upstairs, went onto some EV websites yep. and some normal HTTPS websites that just have a standard certificate. Um, and it's just the same padlock now. So certainly this, the, when you used to be able to tell the difference between a, as a website that's gone through crazy security validation, mm. or at least to prove they own this website, even that's being degraded. I think, you know, ultimately because the URL bars, this pri- um, it's quite a big box on a right. desktop, right? And URLs are quite long. But if you look at that on a mobile phone, it doesn't work anymore, right? URLs yep. on phones, you can't read the whole URL. You can't see, and if you put the extended validation certificate on a mobile, it pushes the whole URL out of view. You wouldn't even see it. So there's loads of changes, that, like you said, that you know the, um, the browser developers are kind of doing, the, the changes that we're seeing with extended validation not being seen as useful because what's more useful is letting the user see the URL and just know simply they are secure. I think, no, I think unfortunately, we live in a world where at the moment, being able to understand what domain you're on uh, and whether or not using HTTPS is quite important. So the research that Greg was talking about basically highlighted the fact that people don't understand the difference between the different kinds of certificates. Mm. Um, and I don't think there's any point in trying to teach people. Yeah. What's important is that you see the padlock. The padlock appears if you're using HTTPS. So the two are interchangeable, but who knows what the browser interfaces will look like in future so for now uh knowing that you've got the padlock is the same as knowing that you've got https but all that means of course is that your traffic to and from the website so from your browser to the website and back again is encrypted it doesn't mean that the website is itself secure or that you're talking to the website that you think you're talking to yeah absolutely actually that's the danger of the word secure in there because it means transport security yes is in like mark's saying it's the security from your device to their device it doesn't actually mean that they are the destination that you're trying to reach is a secure place like yeah i can install let's encrypt on any website and make it https you know if i run that server but i can still serve malware out of it there's nothing stopping me there so actually maybe this is actually an important fact that i think what people think by security is they mean i can't get hacked or broken or, or whatever but really HTTPS and that S standing for transport security not you know a fully trustable secure interaction kind of means that it's not that valuable to the end user right it's like yeah look for the padlock EV it's like you don't really care about the extended validation because for the end user it, it, they're probably more concerned with if I send this website my bank details are they going to do anything dodgy versus is someone going to hijack me in between so you could click on a phishing link that someone has made and it could have this secure padlock at the top. Absolutely, and, and frequently right. does. Right. So, I mean, phishing attacks just mimic what's kind of normal in the real world. And, and as Greg says, the, the setting up a phishing website with HTTPS essentially costs nothing. Right. Doom and gloom. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving on, I'm going to be talking about the Twitter 2FA scandal. Mm-hmm. So, at Naked Security, we're always talking about two-factor authentication as a way of becoming more secure, and we always recommend that people use that on all the websites that they use. Yeah. So, two-factor authentication is basically pr- when you provide an additional piece of information, which is normally a code, when you log in. So, you don't mm-hmm. just use your username and password. You then type in, like, six digits or whatever. Yeah. I use an app on my phone, and it just generates a code, as I said, that disappears or you can use your phone number and then you'll get sent a text message with the code that you type in and this i think is one of the simplest things i've learned since being in cybersecurity and something that we recommend but unfortunately this week twitter are in the news for i think mistakenly using people's 2fa mobile numbers as advertising hang on a minute, oh, hang on a minute. Uh, this sounds awfully familiar 
Didn't didn't this happen to Facebook as well? Yeah, so Facebook did this last year, and I don't know whether <laughs> I don't know whether it was Twitter an accident like when Facebook did it. Wagon. I think it was more that they intentionally used this as um, yeah advertising information. Whereas I think this time when Twitter have done it, it was a mistake. They didn't know they were doing it allegedly, and they've said that since they've been made aware of it, they have stopped. When you use any social media platform, your age, your gender, your location, your interests, and also your mobile number and your email address can be used as marketing. Um, So this is all in a separate area of the website, and you do actually agree to this in the terms and conditions. However, with the 2FA, you are putting in this additional phone number at login, and then whenever you log in from a new device, you would be sent a code to that number. However, this has now been merged in with some of this marketing data and it's not clear whether that would be separated again so some people are obviously and rightfully very annoyed about this they gave their phone number under the illusion that it was only going to be used for 2fa not Mm. marketing purposes and some people have multiple twitter accounts that don't have their Mm -hmm. real name attached to it or their business accounts so this is a bit of a faux pas by twitter this is a faux pas from from twitter especially because like i mean you made that point right at the end that uh, you know, you might have multiple accounts, but if you're trying to then add some security and then use 2FA and then ended up providing them your mobile, so at least you could achieve this kind of extra security, they're now using that to correlate all your accounts. So they can now say, well, actually, that one's you, this one's also you, and that helps them build decent targeting for, you know, or, or decent profiles for targeted advertising. So yeah, I, certainly that's a it's a real shame. So, you know, someone could have put a lot of effort into trying to maintain separate identities right. and try and avoid all of this, and it's all been undone by sadly trying to do some extra I, I don't know about you, but I feel like if I worked at Twitter and Facebook got consumed by this giant scandal where it turns out that yeah. they were using people's 2FA phone numbers for marketing, I would probably go and check. I'm very surprised <laughs> that this is happening like a year later. So this is uh, disappointing for us at Naked Security because Mm -hmm. we spend so much time talking about two-factor authentication and the benefits of using it. And so many people have never heard of two-factor authentication. It's another one of those sort of terms like HTTPS. People don't know what it means. It's not clear. And now a lot of people will be hearing about it for the first time associated with their favorite social media account that they yep. use in a negative light yep. and about it being used to uh, target them in advertising. So this is a shame because we want to encourage people to use it and see the benefit of it. And yep. now we have a negative story. Oh, 2FA. What's that? Oh, that's right. that thing that Facebook and Twitter <laughs> and people both might use for marketing. Yeah. They're just trying to get you to put your phone number in under a guise of 2FA so that they can get more well, data. Out people of certainly said that about Facebook. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't believe it's true. I mean, I, 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 I tend to think that you know, these are well. These are giant companies. Yeah. You, you look sceptical, Greg, but I, I always take the view. Always. These are absolutely enormous companies. You've got tens of thousands of software developers trying to get all those people to work together in concert and do kind of sensible things. Must be extremely difficult, and they must be kind of screw ups all the time. And you know, if you've got that much data, then you can have your screw ups can be big, can't they? Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't excuse the fact that you thought you were putting your phone number in. For one reason, and it ended up using for a very different reason because you know marketing and security are poles apart. So, Alice, so should we be uh, ditching two-factor authentication or SMS two FA? 
I don't think so, no. I think with two-factor authentication, as we mentioned at the beginning, there are loads of different avenues you can use. You could get an app on your phone or you can use a hardware key like we mentioned. SMS codes probably, if you're not familiar with security, are a really easy way of doing it. Mm. And I do still think it has value. I know that we've seen um, with SIM swap attacks, there are risks associated with giving your phone number. But if you're just a normal person who's just going about your daily life, you're not a big uh, public figure yeah or you know i don't think people are going to be targeting your phone number so a sim swap attack is when somebody goes into say um your provider and claims to be you um in order to get access to your phone number and that would mean that if as we saw with the ceo of twitter yeah um if you're a big um well-known person they can then use the two-factor authentication of your phone number to access your account so if I get your so I get your two FA codes. If I take right. over your phone, I get your two FA codes. So yeah, codes. if you yeah. wanted to access my account, if I was the CEO of Twitter, you might get my one phone day, number. Alice. One, one day, Alice. <laughs> um, you could access my phone number, and then when the two-factor authentication code comes in, which only lasts for about thirty seconds, yeah. you'd have access to it, and then you could get into my account. But that happens very rarely, and when we cover these stories, I think it can paint two FA in a bad light. But I think generally these are small risks. This was um, a mistake by Twitter. This wasn't done maliciously. So I think we should continue to use 2FA and if the only thing you're going to use is your phone number then I would I would still recommend it yeah I agree I think even given this like the risks the risks that you run by not using two-factor authentication are so much greater than the risk of being accidentally overmarketed to yeah on Twitter right um and I mean I think it's interesting we we were talking about HTTPS earlier and the fact that it's now easy for phishing sites to use HTTPS and we're starting to see the same thing with two-factor authentication codes. So with Gmail, there was some information came out of Google a while ago saying that I think it's only 10% of Gmail users are using two-factor authentication, but there are enough people using two-factor authentication that it's worth the crooks starting to try and capture that information through phishing. And I don't, I think that's, it's unfortunate, but it was always going to happen. And it's not a reason not to use two-factor authentication because I've never been that comfortable with the idea that uh, 2FA codes are some kind of defense against phishing. Because if if you hand over a code to a fisher and they use it within the sort of 30 seconds or code that that the code is valid for, then, you know, you're done for. It's, It's as good as capturing a password. I mean, phishing is a reaction to when someone can't get credentials or can't gain access, right? That's what you're trying to fish for. So, yeah. I mean, phishing, the reason why someone might be starting to fish for 2FA credentials is because it is testament to that 2FA is working, right? And yeah. the fact also, that they're going <laughs> to go for that second barrier, they really want to access your account. And I imagine yeah. that most fishes are just masks you know, trying to get into any mm. account. They're not actually targeting you. Mm. So to really, really try and get that second barrier is probably less likely, isn't it? So you're still going to be more secure. Yeah, exactly. Threat modelling-wise, I think the kind of people that, you know, that, that an attacker is going to go to the extremes to try and get their second factor, um, at least we know we're not seeing any kind of mass scale uh, 2FA phishing campaigns, which are really hard going after this. We're seeing small scale ones, but nothing to the, yeah. the same extent of your standard fish that's in your email inbox every day. So are the phone numbers that were caught up in this now out of the marketing database, Alice? Um, Well, Twitter has said that they fixed the problem. Good. Um, But they said that they weren't doing this to begin with. So the fact that they then found out that, oh, we are doing it and we didn't realise we are, now they've said the problem is fixed. I mean, we don't know whether it is. Yeah, it's the truth. You'll never know. <laughs> yeah. Unless you go go work for them and probably find Exactly. Out, yeah. And probably obviously I will in a couple of years. I don't work for them or yet. Or when you go and take over a CEO, of course. Exactly. I'll find out and I'll let you know, guys.
Thanks. So I um I have an idea, and I don't know what you guys think of this. Obviously, you're more techie than me, but I feel like two-factor authentication is a bit of a mouthful, mm. and I feel like we say it all the time and we understand it, and it's such a simple security practice that's so easy and one of the simplest things that people can do. But it's not clear. It's not self-explanatory. And every time we say it, we have to back it up with what it means. Because it, it, I just feel like we could rebrand it. I, do, I think this is, this is one of the areas where um, IT and cybersecurity are so good at shooting themselves in yeah. the foot. Because it's not even as bad as two-factor authentication is a bit of a mouthful. Because sometimes we call it two-factor authentication. Sometimes we call it 2FA. And if you write a story... And you can go and check this out in the comments on Naked Security. If you write a story about two-factor authentication, somebody will turn up in the comments and tell you you don't mean two-factor authentication. You mean, mean two-step verification or, or multi-factor multi authentication or some but, other... Yeah, why do we do that? Can't why we call is it that logging in? Right. <laughs> That's what it is. Logging in with logging a code. In. This is the problem is that because it's... Right, the paradigm of a username and password was designed for when, you know, like back in the 50s or 60s where you had your big room-sized computer. Mark remembers this, don't you? Yeah, just wind your mind back. Um, like the reel-to-reel -reel tape you used to have to load. And then you go into these like room-sized computers and you would have to share those computers with multiple people. And so they just needed a way to separate people from, you know, who were using it. And so they were like, well, let's come up with using names. And then they were like, oh, but then someone could use that at the same time. So they added passwords to it as just this simple way in the same location to just make it a bit more secure. It was designed when your computer was also secured of being in like a massive building. No one was going to nick it. It wasn't on an internet. There wasn't really even an internet when username passwords were devised as a security technology. And we've sat using them for an awfully long right. amount of time. It's it's an archaic form of yeah. security. Um, you know, as we know, it's like the word password. It should be passphrase or something more complex. Password is obvious, but yeah. Well, you say that, but then why does a website never accept my password of word? It goes, oh, it's not a suitable password. It's a word. Sorry, I make a point here, but it should, you know. I'm quite glad the, I'm quite glad the website won't accept your terrible <laughs> password, password of word. Yeah, there you go. Please, please, no one log into my accounts. But I think it comes down to it that two FA, MFA two-step verification, whatever you want to call it's it. It's called multi-factor verification. Sorry, multi-factor <laughs> multi authorization, authentication. We're getting ourselves into a hole. It should just be the modern form of logging in. And, I, and I, you know, I, we're getting to a point where services shouldn't let you just log in with a username or password. Yeah, I agree. And, I, and that's the best way for people to learn. Yeah. So to wrap this up, I think on Twitter, we're going to ask you guys, what do you think we should call it? Why don't we find out what our listeners think? Is there like a simpler way? Oh, they're going to help us brand our next product. Exactly, exactly. Thanks, guys. Um, but moving on, Greg, can you, um, you're going to talk to us about how not to use Stack Overflow. Oh, my goodness. Um, are you going to, so Alice, do you write any code? Absolutely all the time, yeah. Absolutely all the time. I spend 90% of my time actually coding. You are, yeah, it's, it's all those languages you speak, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, uh, and Mark, I mean, you're a bit of a coder as well, right? I have written some code, yeah. So... I think, Alice, you might have been slightly joking there. Yeah, by the way, I, okay, I was being Because <laughs> otherwise, if I ask I you what... I have written a little tiny Have you ever piece. copied and pasted something from Stack Overflow? I can actually say no. No. <laughs> you see, that's a much better test of whether someone's a programmer than whether or not they've written yeah, code. You can't be if you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for anyone that doesn't know, Stack Overflow is like one of the most popular question and answer websites for programming, questions in general. So you kind of go on there, you post a question about something you're coding in whatever language, you tag it with the languages and tools you're using and libraries and so on, and then people can answer it. And it's kind of like Reddit, if you've used Reddit, that people get to then vote on the answer. So if it's a good answer, you can give it an upvote. If it's 
a bad answer if you give it a down vote. What that means is Stack Overflow becomes this great website for, at the top, someone's question saying, hi, I'm trying to achieve this with my code. And then the top voted answer underneath is like a snippet of code explaining how to achieve that. Oh. So it's very good for developers. They're like, how do I do this thing? Like, how do I hash a password, right? Uh, or something like that. And they can go and find that Stack Overflow in their language of choice, using their libraries of choice or whatever. And underneath a nice pre-written bit of code, copy and paste. So some uh, researchers decided to do an actual empirical study of this because, you know, how many people are actually copying and pasting code and reusing that in real projects isn't really a known thing. We don't know what is the white Everyone. Everyone. I think that's <laughs> everyone it is, it is, is everyone. But we've never had like a, a scientific approach to finding the answer to this. Just ask me. Everyone. <laughs> everyone, everyone is done, using done. Stack Overflow. <laughs> so uh, a group of academics from a whole bunch of universities around the world wrote a paper called An Empirical Study of C++ Vulnerabilities in Crowdsource Code uh, Examples. I.e., yeah, it's a great title, right? It really rolls off the tongue, <laughs> like all uh, scientific papers do. When you've uh, sorted out two-factor authentication, right. maybe yeah, yeah, you can come back and this paper, one. Absolutely. <laughs> so the team reviewed over 72,000 C++ code snippets across Stack Overflow. So that's a lot of snippets of code. Um, and what they're trying to do then is then match the, the kind of code snippets with um, a thing from MITRE. So MITRE, who do the whole CVE database yeah. and attack framework, they also do this thing called the Common Weaknesses Enumeration, or the CWE. It's like a, a list of the most common vulnerabilities in code and, and stuff. So by matching all these 72,000 snippets, they were able to identify 69 snippets of code, which, re uh, which covered about 29 different floors. So we got 69 just snippets of code. It's not a big amount, right? Just a, but a vulnerable code that was posted on Stack Overflow. They then started searching through GitHub, mm -hmm. a common website for hosting open source code, and taking these 69 vulnerable snippets they found on Stack Overflow, looking for them in C++ projects on GitHub. They found, hang on, I think I, 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 have I got the number? Yes, they found 2,859 projects on GitHub using these vulnerable bits of code. So that shows that these simple 69 clips on, you know, Stack Overflow being copied and pasted over 2,859 times into all these different projects. And this is just one simple study. They they didn't exactly so spend this is it just C++, plus, isn't it? This is just one language this is not as well. One, oh, right. All vulnerabilities wow. one language, languages. Yeah. This one is... language with a small sample set. Yeah. Yeah. It, to the, to, it's kind of terrifying because it really shows, A, the reliance of, of people to use Stack Overflow for code is somewhat terrifying because people like to copy and paste code. Uh, and that, the fact that how pervasive it becomes, which means that, yeah, we, we're getting a load of vulnerabilities into lots of applications. And it's not like... Uh, a better way of doing code is something through, through libraries. So if I'm solving a problem, I could write a library of code and someone else can use that. But what the great thing about libraries is and, and, and keeping up to date with people's libraries, if I find a vulnerability, I can fix it. And everyone, when they're building their projects, gets the latest version of my library. It's great. With copied and pasted snippets, no one's going back onto like Stack Overflow to see if someone's patched the code in Stack Overflow. I've got some bad news for you. Oh, really? Yeah. They the, are? The code in the library? Yeah. It was copied from Stack Overflow. <laughs> Okay, so it's the same problem. We can't escape this then. <laughs> so I, I I tried to figure out some advice for people on this. Right. And I, this is, I, I kind of struggled. So Mark, you might have to help me with this. But one, please don't copy and paste code that you don't fully understand off of Stack I'm, Overflow. I'm going to disagree with you here. You should copy and paste. <laughs> I'm going to disagree with you here. I Go think it. this is a good news story. You think this is a positive one? I do. Wow. I do. I'm excited to hear this. I like this. It sounds like it's going to be controversial. So I've got my fisty cuffs ready mm. <laughs> for us to spar. <laughs> ding, ding. Go on, Mark. Be ding, controversial. Ding. So the alternative 
to, I think people are a bit sneery about cutting and pasting code from Stack Overflow. The truth is that people learn to program by doing stuff. Some people go and do university courses and they learn stepwise what to do, but a whole bunch of people, me included, you learn by trying to do stuff and you need other people to learn from and everybody benefits from peer review. One of the best things that you can do for your code is have other people look at it. And I think the alternative to people going and cutting and pasting things from Stack Overflow is trying to write them themselves. You know, read some books, write some code, hope you've written secure code, Nobody else ever sees it. And then right. you, having solved that problem once, will then copy and paste your solution into all the other code that you write that requires the same solution. And so you don't have the opportunity of learning that you've made a mistake and you copy your mistake into all of your code. I much prefer a situation where people are going to stack overflow where there, there is at least some peer review. Now, everybody's got a lot to say about the peer review system on Stack Overflow. And there are some bad answers with a lot of votes. And there's a lot of people on Stack Overflow telling you your question's wrong. But for all of that, there is some peer review going on and there is an opportunity for coders to learn. There is an opportunity for coders to copy and paste code that is secure. Um, so it's for me, it's one of those things where in any kind of imperfect system, you will be able to look at it and go, hey, look, this imperfect system, it's got some imperfections. We've written a research paper about it. But I think the alternative is probably far less secure. I I like your controversial point, but is there a is there potential on Stack Overflow that people can put malicious code on there that people would copy and paste onto their website? I mean, there is potential, right? Does that happen? And then it, you would... I don't know if there's any... I, can't, I would never want to come out and say that it's definitely happened, right. but it seems certainly plausible. Yeah. Um, I, I think you would hope, though, very quickly someone would shoot it down. Yeah. Um, okay. there, was, I, there was actually... There was some research a few years ago actually looking at copying and pasting because the interesting thing about copying and pasting is that you often don't copy and paste what you think you're copying and pasting. So I don't know if you've ever copied anything from a website and then pasted it and seen actually that there's a sort of rider that appears after it that says this came from such and such a website with a link. Yeah, That's the demonstration that what you highlight with your mouse is not necessarily what you're copying and pasting. And so there is, there's a danger of not only, like it is a danger of the code itself looking secure, but you actually copying some malicious code along with it. I think, so this is the fun bit, because of course you're talking about the whole copy pasting side of things. Yeah. Because I think I'd agree, I agree with 90% of what you said about Stack Overflow, but then it's the fact that people are copying and pasting it verbatim, right? Yeah. It's not, this is, if I see that exact snippet of code in somewhere else, yeah. I'm more inclined to think that they didn't bother to go, how can this be rewritten for my project or how can I refactor this to fit my 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 code that I'm writing? But instead it's just like copy this exact code as is, it's fine, paste. Your coders is charming. <laughs> the point I want to make about this is that I you know, from the way that you identify those snippets in other projects, they couldn't have done it with like variable pattern names. It's literally the exact code that's been regurgitated somewhere else, yep. which means variable names and everything's in, in, in common, which is what the danger is, right? That's someone that didn't bother to either fully, re, uh, you know, when you, whenever I see some code written somewhere online and you're told this everywhere, every, every time you pick up your first coding book, 
the, the way you should code should be, um, you know, read this book and write it yourself. Like, write it yourself. Like, you know, actually understand how it's written, rename the variables, make it how it works with you. You know, you're not meant to just copy-paste code. Because yeah. you, as you said, you learn by doing. Mm. Copying and pasting isn't doing. It's just this will work, paste, done, next problem, right? Um, and I think that's the I think that's the resounding thing I can at least make as some advice is that if you're reading code online, I'd still write it yourself. Like as in, don't just copy and paste it into your code and then start using their variable names and just accept it perfectly. Maybe rename the variables, make sure it works with what you're writing. Uh, Re, you know, research every single function call that's being used in that that code. Don't just accept that it achieves the the goal. Actually, try and understand well why would they want to use this function? Because that's how you learn. Copying and pasting isn't is a great way to write code and get simple problems solved and move on. But I guess it, it, this is where we came I, back I to think, a I think that's great advice. Basically, don't run code you don't understand, and yeah. don't ask yeah. other people to run your code if you don't understand it. But this also goes back to something we've been talking about several weeks and almost in a row now about the lack of. Um, education for secure coding. Mm. So when they were looking at all these code snippets, the vast majority of them were basically input uh, sanitization issues where mm. they weren't just checking that the input that was going into the program was correct. And so this is very common you see on Stack Overflow. You know, it might be someone's, uh, their program needs to validate a text string to see what color something should be. Like, mm. should it be red? Should it be blue? Should it be green? And someone might validate that input by checking, is the type of this a string of text? Because that's technically what it's expecting. But actually, the type of validation they really should be doing is, does it say red? Does it say blue? Does it say green? Is it one of my accepted forms of input? You would yep. effectively say, there's a white list of inputs. Um, and I think that's this is something you learn through doing secure coding. Yep. But it's not something that's readily available to a lot of people. On Stack Overflow, a lot of people, they're not reading your whole code base to understand what you're trying to achieve to answer your question. So often the answer is very generic and it's not trying to solve the full problem that you have. Um, so yeah, to any developer out there that hasn't been through some secure coding or any kind of training like that, if you've got a manager you could probably convince to do so, Really should uh, you know ask out if you can get get on some training like that, or maybe pay for some your Did own you training. Say ask Anna if you can get on some training like that. Ask Mark. out, like ask <laughs> <laughs> Mark. When yeah, you get yeah, out, yeah, come on, just just message out Anna, and she'll just yeah, she'll approve it for you. But no, there's there's some really good training out there, and the one nice thing is that once you've got that mentality, once you've you 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 kind of think uh, so like the mentality you'll learn through secure coding is that all input is malicious. Just assume it is because when you develop thinking that everything that could be inputted is going to be dangerous, you start thinking, well, how can I verify if something is what I'm, I hope it should be? Mm. And that's where you start going down these routes of creating a whitelist for inputs and things like that. Um, so yeah, highly recommend some secure coding training to anyone that hasn't I, had it. I think you kids are spoiled. I remember <laughs> learning to code. I remember, so obviously I learned Perl. 10, print hello, <laughs> 20, go to 10. So I, I learned Perl because I, I learned to program basically to get websites to do stuff. And when I was doing that, the language that you used was Perl. And if you wanted to know how Perl, uh, if you wanted to know stuff about Perl, you couldn't go to Stack Overflow with this beautiful interface and all these upvotes and thoughtful discussion about, okay, well, maybe do your code like this. You had to go to this terrifying place on Usenet called comp.lang.misc.perl. <laughs> which was populated by dragons and beasts. And if you asked a question in, in if you asked a question that they felt was beneath them, which was almost all forms of question, right. they would simply lecture you at length about how inadequate your question was. <laughs> so the just prospect like of it, you just had to jump from being newbie to Aww. genius. Yeah. There was there were no intermediate step. You simply had to make the leap. I did learn one thing from comp.lang.misc.pearl though, and that is that it is not possible to validate 
all possible forms of email addresses with a single regular expression. It was a bit of a competition when they weren't burning new users alive. <laughs> they would exchange regular expressions that captured more and more of the uh, the email address specification in one swoop. I would love to have seen those patterns. They become so esoteric it looks like someone smashed their face on the keyboard. <laughs> Well, thanks for covering that, Greg. I'll definitely bear it in mind next time I'm on Stack Overflow looking for some code. Please do, don't, don't copy-paste. Um, Actually, I was going to say, I really, really want them to repeat this with PHP because they, <laughs> they chose C++. Don't, don't, don't look behind the curtain. You don't want to know. <laughs> like, if, you're, if you're using C++, then you're, you're doing something quite tricky already. Mm. Um, and I wonder if they did this with PHP, if they would only find 69 samples of insecure code. <laughs> I think they wanted to have a will to live after the end of the project. So, so Mark, you're going to be yes. talking about an Android Zero Day with a difference yes. here. So, so I am. So earlier you were talking about two-factor authentication. That's one of those things that we, mm. we repeat over and over. It's great security advice. One of the other things that we repeat over and over and over and over again is patch early, right. patched often. And we say it as often as we do because it really makes a difference. Yeah. Okay. So the crooks and hackers are trying to take over your baby cameras, encrypt your hard drive, crypt mine on your SQL server. They are all, by and large, relying on exploiting bugs that you haven't patched yet. And in fact, we heard from Peter McKenzie a few episodes ago. He came in and he was talking about um, uh, Emotet. That even the kind of feared and sophisticated gang, even the most feared and sophisticated gangs like the ones behind Emotet, Trickbot, Ryuk, are mostly living off low-hanging fruit like weak passwords right. and unprotected or unpatched machines. However, although it happens less often than you might think from looking at the media coverage, every so often the bad guys beat the good guys to the punch and they find a so-called zero-day vulnerability, which is one that the good guys don't know about. So the idea is that even if you're absolutely on top of your game, you've had zero days to patch against this problem. Strangely, though, last week we learned about a zero day in Android that the good guys did know about before the bad guys. Uh, it seems that they learned about it, forgot that they'd learned about oh, it, right. and then remembered again two years later. <laughs> and didn't act on it. Um, it was, well, they may have. Uh, Google's being a bit kind of um, foggy on this one. So it, it was the... The problem was rediscovered by a Google Zero researcher called Maddie Stone, and she rang the alarm bell, uh, but also pointed out that the first time Google had seen this bug in their phone software was actually two years wow. prior. So the flaw is now identified as CVE-2019-2215. The 2019 in that code is the year in which it was discovered. So the 2019 in that ID really ought to be 2017, because that's when Google <laughs> first saw it. And when it thought, it had fixed it. But somehow, some versions of Android got fixed and others didn't. So, Maddie Stone wrote, this issue, was, this issue was patched in December 2017 in the 4.14 LTS kernel, AOSP Android 3.18 kernel, AOSP Android 4.4 kernel, and AOSP Android 4.9 kernel. But the Pixel 2, with the most recent security bulletin, is still vulnerable based on source code review. So they thought they had fixed it, but in fact, they hadn't. So is it just Pixel 2s that are affected in this? Uh, no, it's not. So uh, Maddie Stone mentioned that in her uh, description, but there's actually a whole bunch of phones that are affected. Okay. If you want to know, I don't have the full list here, but if you want to know what the list is, we'll put a link to the Naked Security story right. in the show notes, and then you can go and look. One word of warning, though, 
the the list is for the phones that we know for sure are affected, but there will be phones that aren't on the list that are affected. Now, we don't know why this didn't get fixed everywhere. And when you hear about who's been exploiting it, you might be tempted to um, launch into a conspiracy theory. But mm. I suspect that Hanlon's razor applies. Hanlon's razor is that old quote that says, uh, never attribute to malice that which can be explained by stupidity. Um, okay. The bug in question is, quote, a kernel privilege escalation using a use-after-free vulnerability, which is a kind of memory corruption, accessible from inside the Chrome sandbox. In other words, it's one of those really serious vulnerabilities that allows for a full compromise of your phone, a uh, full compromise of an unpatched device just by visiting the wrong website. So if the bad guys put up a malicious website, they can use it to exploit your phone and take control of it, which is bad. Now, I've been saying bad guys in my story, but even the bad guys, quote unquote, in this story are unusual because, well, they might not be that bad. It all depends on your perspective. So the people who have been exploiting this flaw are the NSO group, and the NSO group are not uh, some bunch of hackers. They are actually uh, a company, an Israeli company that produces surveillance software, most famously the Pegasus spyware, uh, which they sell to governments and government agencies. So they might not be your flavour, but if you mm -hmm. accept that you know governments and police should be allowed to bug phones and things like that under warrant, right. then you know is using NSO spyware under warrant any different from that? I don't know. Anyway, so that particular avenue is about to be closed off for the NSO group and anybody using their products because for most users there will be a fix in the October Android security update. If you get it. If if you get it. <laughs> yeah, the joys of uh, joys of uh, what, fragmented what say, user Greg? base. I'm, I mean, I am an Android user. I'm a, I'm a user of pretty much every operating system, to be brutally honest. But yeah, there's a lot of people out there. You might have an out-of-date handset. You might not be getting those security patches. So pay close attention to the Android version number that you've got installed. Maybe also pay close attention to the last date you got an update. <laughs> um, there's, some, there's some handset manufacturers that only push out maybe one update per year, and then they probably cease to release updates. It's kind of one of the problems with Android is that... Yeah. There's it, the apps and so on all kind of work pretty well, even though mm. your device isn't patched for over a year or so. Um, so yeah, I, I'm always uh, asking people to just go double check. When was the last time you got a patch? When what was the current version of Android you got installed? Maybe check that against. It's not. It's not an operating system in quite the same way as something like um, iPad OS or iOS is yeah. an operating system. It's more like a family of operating systems. Well, oh, yeah, it? you you mentioned the AOSP earlier, the Android yeah. Open Source Project, because I mean Android is there's like the bare bones operating system which is open source, and then any other ma manufacturer can take a copy of the Android Open Source Project and build their own version. It's kind of like Linux distributions. Mm. So you know Samsung have theirs, LG will have theirs, and they might only be maintaining that distribution of Android for a specific bunch of handsets and stop maintaining it for those, and then only support you know their developments on newer handsets so it's quite a I, I guess fragment is the right phrasing but yeah there's there's a lot of fragmentation amongst android um which google is putting good work in to try and fix yeah um, putting a lot of pressure on they are putting in some good work to fix this giant Absolutely. problem they've created but, that is true yeah but we still <laughs> but we still exist with that problem where for instance i'm still encountering people who've got android 4 on their device yeah <laughs> i know right help those people greg <laughs> i think the only problem only way to help them is sadly to buy them a new handset i think it, it's, um, it raises an interesting point. It comes back to what we were alluding to earlier, I think, which is 
I mean, this is this is a kind of eye-catching bug. There's a bit of a story. It's a bit like the SMS SIM swaps. If you were going to be a victim of this, so far as we know, the NSO group are the only people who've got this. And so you are going to be someone who is interest of interest to law enforcement somewhere if you end up being a victim of this. That's assuming that the bug hasn't been rediscovered by a different group or leaked somehow. A la, a la um, eternal romance and, and uh, eternal yes, blue, right? it happens, sadly. Uh, but I think if you're still version, if you're still using version four of Android, you know you've got much bigger problems than this. <laughs> there are so many good reasons to patch that aren't this bug. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, you should patch to try and um, you should patch to try and close up this hole. But you should be patching anyway to close up all the other ones as well. If you want to know if your patch deals with this, then look for the CVE number in the release notes. The CVE number is CVE-2019-2215. Cool. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Greg. So, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for for today's episode. Um, so, where can we find you each on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Mark Stockley and at Internet of Hens. Greg? You can find me on Twitter at, at Secbug and on Reddit as the user are just, just Secbug. And I'm at Ali Rouge on Twitter and we're at Naked Security everywhere. And we are trying to get our podcast discovered in more places. So do rate and review us. It does really help us. And we'll see you next week. Until next time. Stay, stay secure. secure.